Continuing our series in John's Gospel this morning, and we've reached the start of chapter 4. So if you'd like to turn to page 1066, page 1066 in the Red Bibles, and we're starting John chapter 4 from verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well? and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship a father, the father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. 
Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Thanks for reading that, Nicola. Do keep it open in front of you. And uh, let me pray. Let me pray for us as we come to look at these words from John's Gospel. Oh, holy God, you are you are high and exalted above us in your power and your holiness. And we are very fallen in our sin and our darkness. And we could no more work you out or comprehend you than an ant could comprehend and work out a mountain range. And we sit before you this morning with your word open, not as people who are able to work out truths about you, but as people who need a holy and gracious God to speak to them. And we ask that you would graciously do that for us this morning. Would you speak to us so that we might be changed into people who trust and follow the Lord Jesus, and we ask it in his name. Amen. Um, someone said to me the other week, oh, oh, I met someone, I met someone who knows you. Um, don't know if anyone's ever said that to you before. Oh, I met someone who knows you, and what goes through your mind at that point? I wonder who it is. <laughs> and I wonder from which period of my life uh, it was. And what did they say about me? Do you ever have that kind of panic? Um, is it good or bad what they said? I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, if you're here on Sunday morning, what if someone who knew you well, what if someone who knew you really well, uh, wrote down lots of things about you and popped it in an envelope? Uh, would, you want, uh, would you want me to open it? Would you want me to, to read it out? Uh, are there things? Are, are there things you suspect could be in there? Maybe temper? Gossip, uh, lies that you've told, resentments that you've held on to. And if we were to head into John 4, that Nicola just read for us, for our subject matter. Sexual immorality, past adultery, considered adultery. Or do you hear those kind of things? Do you hear those kind of things and inside your own head you're silently thinking, no, my mess is worse Keep that envelope closed. Because here's the thing. In John 4, Jesus is going to say to you and to me, with him we can and need to be open and honest about the mess of life. That's a big ask, isn't it? Just adjust this. That's a big ask. And you might be thinking, look, David, you don't know what would be in my envelope. You don't know what's in there. It's too complicated. So... This morning, look, come with me to John 4. If you've got this open in front of you, come back to it. Come with me to John 4 and allow Jesus to persuade you. He can show you the way to life. Because John 4 is kind of saying to us, look, what happens, what happens when you meet the light of the world? Uh, at the beginning of his gospel, John introduces Jesus and he tells us, look, he's, he's God the Son and he's become human. God's come into this messy, sin-spoiled world. He's like a bright light. Shining in a dark place, the light shining in the darkness. That's how John described him back in chapter 1, verse 5. And in chapters 3 and 4, we meet two different people. In chapter 3, last week it was Nicodemus. If you were here on Sunday morning, Darren was telling us about Nicodemus and his meeting with Jesus. Chapter 4 we're into now, 
Now, it's this woman at the well, and it's worth comparing them. John's put them, if you like, kind of side by side. And at first glance, they couldn't be more different, could they? Obviously, there's Nicodemus and the woman. Here's the kind of things about them. He's male. She's female. He's Jewish. She's a Samaritan. He's a religious expert. She's probably sexually immoral, as you read the story. Even the, the time of day when they meet with Jesus. One, it's the middle of the night. One, it's the middle of the day. And they're completely different stories. And yet, as you read them, you actually discover they're very similar stories. I don't know if you spotted it. They're both sort of hiding, aren't they, if you read through these stories? Like, if you've got a reputation that generates respect and praise, and you want to avoid being seen with a controversial figure like Jesus, well, when do you come? You come at night, when no one can see you. If you've got a reputation that generates scandal and abuse, and you want to avoid being seen by just about everyone, well, you hide yourself, and you come out at a time when no one else will be about. That's verse 7, isn't it, in our reading? It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. The hardest part of the day, no one wants to be out then in their, their context. They're both hiding, these people, Nicodemus and this woman at the well. They're both hiding. It's not the only similarity, though. Uh, Jesus talks to both about spiritual realities. With Nicodemus back in chapter 3, it's being born again to new life. With this woman, it's living water that gives new life. Neither of them really get it. You understand, John's telling this story. He's telling it in a cracking way. He's put two people in front of us. And he's saying to us, look, what happens? What happens when two people with things to hide bump into the light of the world? What happens when two people with all sorts of things to hide away bump into the light of the world? And you want to find out, and I'll tell you why. Because if we've got things to hide, what happens to them will happen to us. And you understand what John's saying, putting these two stories side by side. He's saying to us, look, whether you're the man everyone knows or the woman no one wants to know, whether you're someone who appears to have all the answers or someone whose behavior deserves nothing but questions, whether you're someone you think needs no special help from God or someone you think doesn't deserve any at all, you discover here both kinds of people are in need of the light of the world and they both have an opportunity to meet him And that means, so can you. So let me ask you, have you got things hidden? Because the light of the world wants to meet you today. Christian already, or not yet. The woman isn't someone who's following Jesus yet. But let's look at her. See, what happens, what happens when you meet the light of the world? Here's, here's the next thing to think about. When you meet the light of the world, you find Jesus knows everything about you. But the cultural context for this story is ethnic tension. Uh, Jews and Samaritans, they really don't like each other very much. For various reasons, Jews viewed Samaritans as racially and theologically inferior. Uh, Samaritans, well, they would claim a common heritage, with their Jewish neighbours, back to, historically, back to people like Abraham 
and Isaac and Jacob. But any kind of commonality stops there. So it's no wonder this woman's surprised when Jesus asks for water. But not put off, Jesus raises the stakes. Did you notice that as we read it? And he starts to talk to her about spiritual realities. Verse 10, he says to her, If you knew the gift of God and who I am, you would have asked me, and I would have given you, what does he say? Living water. Now, there's a loaded phrase. I've lived in England long enough now as a Scotsman. I've heard all sorts of loaded phrases. Whenever you hear football fans talk about the spirit of 66, you know what they're talking about. Yes, that great time when England won the World Cup. Still, still going on about it. My son, both my sons were born in England, and said to me, what would you do, Daddy, if England won the World Cup again? I thought, probably feel very sad for a long time. But you'd be very excited. But it's a loaded phrase, isn't it? Whenever people talk about the spirit of 66, you know they mean when, when England won the World Cup. Living water, you hear that phrase in this context. It's a loaded idea from the Old Testament. Because it described the experience of receiving a, a fresh running supply of God's goodness and blessing that would restore and sustain life. And it's God's prerogative to give that. And by verse 14 in this story, Jesus says, I can give that to you. And if I do, the quality of life it produces will be eternal. It won't run out. He's saying divine prerogatives belong to him. He's claiming to be God. Remember the first time you ever used a power shower? Do you remember that? Maybe you've only ever known power showers. Byron grew up having baths in the sink, and then baths in the bath, and we didn't really have much of a shower. And the first time you used a power shower and you turn it on, and it's incredible. Do you remember that feeling? And even when it's done the job of cleaning the mess of the day off your body, you still stand there. And you think to yourself, I don't even want this to stop. <laughs> this is just delightful. It's almost bruising me. It's so good. I'm clean now, but I'm not going anywhere. All the hot water's been used up, and you're not moving away from it. And in a sense, that's kind of what's going on here. Jesus is saying, I'm God. And I can give you the kind of streaming water that not only cleans up the real mess of life, but is so good that even when that work is done, you won't want it to stop. And Jesus says, I won't let it eternally. That's a massive claim, isn't it? It's a huge claim to make, and it flies right over our head, because from her comments in verses 11 and 12, this woman seems to think Jesus is claiming to be a well digger, claiming to be as impressive as Jacob, who dug the well. So, Jesus does a very kind thing. He starts to show this woman who he is by telling her he knows exactly who she is. And he tells her some of the contents of her envelope. It's verse 16, isn't it? Go and call your husband. I don't have a husband. Oh, you're right. You've had five. And the man you're sleeping with now is not your husband. One of those very socially awkward moments, isn't it? And he's spot on. See, what stranger has that kind of information? 
Who has that kind of knowledge? By verse 25, she's getting suspicious about this person she's met. I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When, when he comes, he will explain everything. And you understand what she's getting at. Look, only the Christ is meant to have this kind of knowledge. Who are you? So at verse 26, Jesus tells her, he is the Christ. And you see what we're being told. Jesus, because he's God, he knows everything. God's knowledge. I don't know if you've thought much about God's knowledge before, the kind of things he knows. Theologians call it omniscience. God knows everything. But you hear a word like that, and I think it doesn't quite capture it, does it, what that feels like. So try this. Here's some numbers up on the screen for you. You can sit there and work them out for a second. Look, many of you, I know, many of you, this is Cambridge, isn't it? Many of you have done PhDs. Um, so I did. I don't know much about PhDs, but I, I searched to see how long a PhD takes. I mean, I know some take a very long time, some take less. But generally, what I heard, what I read when I looked on the internet was they take between thirty-five to seventy hours a week over three to four years, roughly. Roughly, we'll say that. So let's say fifty hours over four years. So I did some maths, and after holidays, I reckon that's about nine thousand two nine thousand two hundred hours. If you, were able to, uh, if you were able, when you gave that kind of time, you could gain that kind of knowledge for a PhD. And then I wondered, how many PhDs are there? How many PhDs are there? And I, I don't know for the world, but one estimate for the United States says, at the moment, 2.9 million people have PhDs. So I got out my calculator again. I wanted to work out how long would it take to gain all of that kind of knowledge. And there it is at the bottom. Actually, I've got one of the numbers round the wrong way. It should be 3 million. I could never do a PhD. I can't even type something in one number. 3,054,029 years, roughly. If you give yourself that kind of time, you could gain all that knowledge. That's more of a challenge, isn't it? Even for some of you with one or two PhDs. And then you realize that's just current PhDs held by people in the United States on a small bluish planet in the middle of a vast galaxy, which is a small part of the noble universe. But the Bible says God knows everything. And this one who holds that knowledge took on himself a human nature so that we could meet him And the truly wonderful thing is that while he holds all that knowledge, he still remembers your personal details. A woman at a well in Samaria. He knows all about her. And you, here this morning, in Cambridge, with things hidden away in your envelope, the one who knows everything, he remembers your personal details. He knows every detail of the mess and makes in life, but his intention is not to expose you to humiliation, but to open you up to the new life he wants to give. And if you say, if you say, look, my mess is too complicated. No one has the knowledge that can sort this kind of stuff out. John 4 says to you, do you know who you're talking to? See, what happens when you meet the light of the world? You find Jesus knows everything about you.
And here's the next thing. And he says he knows how to give eternal life. How does he do it? How can Jesus give people like you and me, people fallen in the mess of sin, new and eternal life? Well, the answer is kind of tucked in there in verses 23 and 24. It comes, it comes at the end of the one conversation about spiritual realities that the woman seems to have been involved in. And three things Jesus says. He says, look, eternal life, eternal life, it depends on the Spirit, it's rooted in the truth, and it's guaranteed by a single defining event. Sam, if you just knock that on to the next slide, that'd be great. Thanks. Uh, the conversation's about true worship. We don't think just singing songs. They're talking about a life lived in the right direction, a life rightly directed towards God. And it's another way of talking about eternal life. And Jesus says this in verse 23, a, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Here's what he's saying. Look, this eternal life, it depends on the spirit. God is spirit. He doesn't have a physical body like us. He's totally different in that regard. Now, we kind of know that, don't we? We would say, look, God is here with us now. Rob Evans, who's on the staff here, the other week he was in Italy on holiday. And while he was there, he could say the same thing, couldn't he? He could say, God is here. And it doesn't just mean that God is big, as if his elbow's here and his foot was in Italy. No, no, we don't mean that at all when we say God is here. No, God's fully here and he's also fully there. He exists in a different way. And that means, well, that means our means of perception, sight, smell, touch, won't help us with a God who's like that. No, it's a work of the Spirit. If we're going to know a God who's like this, who's different to us, who's beyond us in this kind of way, if we're going to worship him, experience eternal life, God's Holy Spirit must help us. And so we need to be humble and ask God to work in us by his Spirit. And that means it doesn't depend on your ability, but on God's generosity. And he says it's also rooted in the truth. True worship requires that we know God truly, but if we can't find out about him with our sight, our touch, our smell, our signs, how can we know the truth about him? Well, it's Jesus, isn't it? That's what John said back in chapter 1, if you remember back to that. He, he said this, No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, that's Jesus, has made him known. That's why this woman's words... In verse 25, a bang on the money. I know that Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything. It's one of the other differences between this woman and between that religious expert, Nicodemus. He came to Jesus saying he already knew stuff. This woman ends up saying, I'm waiting for the one who can help me know. See, if you're here this morning and you're listening to Jesus, you will get to know God truly. That's why we want to be with our friends and our families who don't know about Jesus yet. That's why we want to share the words of the Bible with them. That's where, if we can, we want to be doing this, reading the Bible one-to-one. -one. We want to invite them to things where they'll be able to engage with the message of the gospel. Inviting people along to the God particle, coming to church on Sundays. True worship, eternal life, is a life lived in 
Spirit and in truth, humbly asking the Holy Spirit to help you know God through the message about Jesus. And that's what a Spirit-filled Christian is like. And Jesus also says, look, it's guaranteed by a single defining event. It's an odd phrase, isn't it, Jesus uses in verse 23, where he says, a time is coming and has now come. Literally, he says, an hour is coming. An hour is coming and has now come. And all the way through John's Gospel, Jesus speaks about his hour. Back in chapter 2, at the wedding in Cana, he says to his mum, my hour has not yet come. Later on in chapter 7 and 8, we'll hear that no one arrested him for his hour had not yet come. Chapter 12, the hour comes into focus, and it's his death. The defining event that guarantees eternal life is the work of Jesus on the cross. And it's where this true story John's recorded is going. Jesus Christ knows everything. He knows everything that you and I want to conceal. The the kind of things we, we tuck away in our envelopes that we hope no one will ever read and certainly no one will ever bring out. And what does he do with that knowledge? He takes that knowledge and the thing he does with it is to go to the cross to take the punishment for it all. This new life that he's offering, it doesn't depend on you. It's a work of God's Spirit rooted in the truth about Jesus and it's guaranteed by his death on the cross for you. And that's why Jesus described it in verse 10 as the gift of God. So what does that mean? That means there's a choice to make, isn't there? Do you want to live in God's new life or not? Well, if you do, then it requires humble dependence on the Spirit and a commitment to let the truth of Jesus reshape our living. And so that means it's envelope open or envelope closed time. Just by way of of one kind of application for this coming week, can I suggest tomorrow morning you take that envelope Whatever it is for you, not a literal envelope, but you know the things that are tucked away. You take that envelope, maybe you're sitting having a coffee, maybe you've got your Bible open, you're reading it. You take that envelope and you say to this giving God, you already know the things in here that frighten me. And they seem way too complicated, but I believe that you know everything. So will you forgive me through what Jesus has done And will you help me by your spirit to live for Jesus in all this mess? Now, things are unlikely to be resolved quickly. The mess of life doesn't work out like that. It might even be painful as God works in you. But perhaps even at the start, you will find that God, by his Holy Spirit, is assuring you Jesus' death guarantees forgiveness a new life to come. And even this week, that might be the assurance you need. And according to John 4, you'll be becoming someone about whom God says, you are a true worshipper. Well, let's stop there. Let's have a moment of quiet, just for our own prayer.
and then Tarita is going to come and lead us again.